I have a confession to make. Today is not going to be like a sermon. And some of you are so glad about that, I know. You're like, yes, I do not need another sermon from you. No, um, or maybe that is what you're thinking. Okay, um, so uh, today is going to be a sort of a weird kind of presentation. We've been in the series called um, Thanks for Sharing. And the thrust of the series is in an effort to get us to share what God has done in us and for us and to share that with others. And what we want to do is we want to be able to proclaim all that God has done. But I have two objectives today as we go on and close this series. One objective is that those of you who are in Christ would be fortified in your faith. That there are questions that people ask that Christians have really, really good answers to. So those of you who are here who love Jesus, I, I pray that you're fortified in your faith. You're strengthened in your faith. But for those of you who are kind of kicking the Christian tires, those of you who are not sure, I pray that this talk helps you to sort of come over the edge. And I pray that you would, in a, in a humble way, just come to Christ as the one who answers all of our needs. And so we're going to go into this text, and we're going to go into this text, and we're just going to look at it briefly, and then I'll, um, we'll go into the rest of the talk. But before we do, I also have another thing to say. This is the Recovery House of Worship. And welcome, if you're here new, and we, just, we, we really think about people who will be newly attending or coming around for the first time. We try to create this environment with you in mind. And so we're grateful that you're here. But I know that during this Thanksgiving Christmas season, I know that there are many of us who are rejoicing and celebrating and think that this is just so fantastic, having a wonderful time shopping. Some of y'all already did all of your shopping, and you're done for the year, and it's great, and, and that's wonderful. And some of you will wait till the 24th. You know, you'll, you'll be in Walmart or, or, or CVS, God forbid, right, trying to get, like, something because somebody said they're coming over, and you said, oh, my gosh, I didn't get them a gift. And, yeah, so that'll be you, and we love you. But no matter where you stand, there are people who are rejoicing, but there are a group of us who the holidays are really, really tough. We, we're going through the, maybe the first time, maybe the fifth time, maybe the 50th time with that loved one that uh, we always strongly remember during these holiday seasons. Maybe we don't have a big family to speak of, and this reminds us that we, we're alone or feeling lonely. Perhaps some of us think that we would be further on in life, and this time, this season, only reinforces that. Maybe things in our lives are not happening the way we wish they did. They, yeah, the way they, we wish they did. And so for all of us, no matter where we are, I want you to know that the Recovery House of Worship is a very safe place to be. It's a place to be broken. It's a place to be hurting. It's a place to be depressed. It's a place to be rejoicing and celebrating too. But I want you to know that you have permission. You do not have to put on a face here. 
You know the person who said, uh, be strong when people were going to cry? He just wasn't wise. He wasn't a student of life. The fact is, is that sometimes tears, tears is the only appropriate response. And so we're told in the Bible that we're to pray, we're to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, and we're to mourn with those that are mourning. And so if you find yourself in a season, don't be embarrassed about that. We love you. We're glad you're here. And we welcome you to the Recovery House of Worship. Now, next week, we're going to start our Christmas series, and it's, going to, it's called Presence. It's so cool. You, get, you can't believe. Uh, by faith, I haven't, uh, I haven't asked the art team yet, which really consists of Braulio. Um, if, um, if, uh, I haven't asked the art team if, uh, what they're going to do in the back, but I know it's going to be awesome. Awesome. And he's sitting there going, no, I just finished that bridge. Um, okay. So, so grateful for you. Now, with that, I want you to put on your thinking caps. All right? Let's do it all together. Okay? We're going to put on our thinking caps. Man. Oh, yeah. And some of you are actually putting on caps. That's cool. Okay. Um, no, no, no. Your thinking caps are imaginary. Not your real caps. Okay. So I want you to put on your thinking caps because today we're going to dive a little bit into the deep end of the pool. We're going to start talking about objections to Christianity. Popular objections like really, really tough questions. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through my questions, but I'm betting a million dollars that you'll have some questions too. And so I'm cool with that. We got a microphone on that side and a microphone on that side. So by the end of the talk, I'm going to try to finish as quickly as I can. You're going to be working on whatever question you want to ask. And if you, if you, here's, here's my only thing, that you write the question down and get it to 10 words or less because we can't have more than one sermon in this service, okay? So, so that means that if you could, whatever I'm talking about, if it sparks off a question, or if you have a question that I simply don't address, I want you to ask it on the mic. Is that fair? Totally different than what we're used to, right? Uh, it's a little nerve-wracking. That's why I'm telling you early. Okay, so... Now, we're going to go into this text. I'm going to go as quickly as I can, but let me tell you why this is such an important sermon for you. I promise you, if you're living out your faith, you will either ask these questions of yourselves or someone else will ask you these questions. And if you don't have an answer, listen to me. Satan will take that and really, really abuse you, really ravage your faith. Now, here's the good news. God loves questions. God loves questions, but God loves answers, too. Satan loves just questions. No answers to leave the doubt lingering in your mind. So if you want to grow in your faith, if you want to, I'm telling you, there's some good stuff that we're going to be focusing on, all right? So we all got our thinking caps on? All right. We're going to look at a, a brief text and I'm going to explain the text, and then we're going to go right into uh, the questions, because it'll make sense as soon as I read the text. One of our traditions is to stand during the reading of God's word, because we really think God's awesome, and we just love him. And so we stand as sort of a, a way of honoring and knowing that this 
these words that we're going to read are, are wonderful. Okay, so <clears throat> we're going to read in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 through 15. Let's all read in a nice, loud voice, but only the beautiful people read, okay? And so, um, all right, so if you're beautiful, you read, okay? On the count of three. One, two, three. But even if you should... Oh, okay. I'm the only beautiful person here. That's why. I was just trying to prove a point. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Let's try it again. I'm sorry. All right. Uh, count of three. One, two, three. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. This is God's Word. Please have a seat. Okay, now, this is super duper 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 important. Peter is talking to people who are suffering for their faith. They're experiencing a negative backlash because they believe in Jesus. And so this is really, um, this answer that Peter's talking about to have ready, he's talking about it while you're suffering, while you're going through that, while you're being persecuted. You, you, should, you should be able to answer. And boy, this is, this is true. If you're following Christ and you go through a tragedy, people start asking questions. They start asking questions like, why, you know, like, you know, you lose a loved one, and people go, why aren't you, like, all broken up? And, and, and you can tell them, no, no, I am broken up, but the reason that you see a little bit of peace in me is because I have peace that's found in Christ. Yesterday, I was with someone, and he was telling a story, and I'm telling you, I was there to speak, and he was sharing his testimony, um, and I wanted to cry. He lost his son at 10 years old, like, I just, it's hard for me to think of something worse than that. That's as bad, right? That's almost as bad as it gets, right? That's pretty bad. And yet he was talking about how Christ had helped him and had comforted him during that time. Well, well when you and I suffer, we get asked questions like, how are you getting through this? And where, why are you so peaceful? Where is this coming from? And we're able to give answers. Now, when we come to Christ, people are going to ask questions whether we've been suffering or not. And Peter gives us a little bit of instruction on exactly how to answer those questions. He says, first of all, if you see it in here on verse 15, the second part of verse 15, he says, always be prepared to give an answer. So the first thing he says is, prepare yourself. Would you just prepare yourself? I remember one time I was driving down the highway and I don't know why this thought came into, the mind. It must, into my mind. It must have came from the Lord. I was driving down the highway, and I thought to myself, and this was the first time I ever did this, I said, if this guy stops in front of me, I'm going to go on the shoulder. I'm just going to go to the left and go on the shoulder if this guy stops fast, right? And like four minutes later, he stopped short. And I did exactly what I thought I was going to do. It was from the Lord, right? And so I was prepared God had supernaturally prepared me for uh, that moment. Well, God can prepare you for those moments where people will ask you questions, where people will 
where even questions will pop up into your own mind. So the first thing Peter says is, would you be prepared? Would you just take it seriously to be able to answer people's questions? But he doesn't just say, be prepared. He says, to everyone who asks you, in other words, be ready for all comers, to give the reason here, to give the reason for the hope that you have, to give the reason. In other words, we're asked not to just say, well, I just take it by faith. Well, I just take it by faith. You know, I remember a friend of mine who, who would answer people. I didn't think this was the best answer, and although I knew he, what he was doing, he was saying, well, the Bible says it, and that I believe it, and that settles it. That was pithy. I was like, wow, that's great. See, if I say that with my Christian friends, everybody's like, oh, yeah, you got it, man. Wow, you're smart. Yeah. If I say that with my Christian friends, but if I try to say that with my skeptic friends, it just sounds silly. It just sounds like mindless drivel, right? And so we don't just want to prepare ourselves. We want to give reason because Christianity is a reasonable faith. And then thirdly, we want to do this in a way that's gentle and respectful. We want to be able to give answers that are gentle and respectful. There have been times where I have lacked either one or the other or both. Because I'm answering people and sometimes I feel like their arguments are silly or they're just saying something, you know, and and I, I lose my patience. And Peter says, no, nah, Ed, don't do that. And let me tell you why Peter will tell me that. Because Jesus took time to speak. I mean, think about this. People were going to Jesus and saying, when is the Messiah coming? And Jesus is like, um, right here, right here. It's me. And they were like, no, 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 really? When is the Messiah coming? He's like, dude, how many times do you want me to tell you the same answer? I'm here. But he would always do it. He did it with love, and he did it respectfully. So if Jesus, who was God incarnate, could do this with love and respect, I know that if he did that for us, we know that Jesus lives in us, in the Holy Spirit, so he'll do it through us. Does that make sense? Okay. So, what could be some of the questions? We're going to go through a few of them. We can't go through every one, but I'm going to try to go through the toughest ones and see if we can't get answers. Are you ready? Are you excited? All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. All right. Okay. So, I'm going to have, like, major categories, and I'm going to try to answer a couple of questions under those categories. That's how this is going to go. All right? So, as I'm speaking... You can write out your question, 10 words or less, and then you can get on the mic at the end and do it. Okay? Fair? All right. So, the first objection. It's, there just, there can't just be one true God. Like, this is, this is the problem with Christianity. You guys are so narrow. I'm going to say this question. There's 50 different ways that you could say this question. You guys are so narrow. You only believe in one God. That's just so narrow. It's not open-minded. Or, or um, isn't it arrogant to claim that Jesus is the only way? Now, 
Okay, when I'm answering this, again, we're doing this with gentleness and respect. I go, we want to we be able to be sensitive to people's uh, things, and we just say, yeah, you know, I understand how you could think that way. I understand how you can think that way. But the fact is, is that truth in and of itself is narrow. Truth is narrow. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Two plus two is four to the exclusion of three and two and one, to the exclusion of 5,673, to the exclusion of every other number. And, and there's infinite, you know, there's an infinite amount of numbers, right? So two plus two is four because it's true. Jesus being Lord is true. And I know that that sounds hard and narrow and all that, but truth by definition is exclusive, right? Okay. But then I would also follow up. So my first response would be, I, I can understand how you could say that, but truth by definition is exclusive. Then the second thing I would say is, everyone is exclusive. You can't just throw that question at me. Everyone is. The atheist excludes Theist. In other words, everybody has a take on spirituality that they think is right. Everybody does. The atheist thinks that all the theist, that means the atheist, the one who doesn't believe in God, thinks that all the theist, the God believers, are all wrong. Well, they're exclusive. The Muslim thinks that the, uh, Allah is true to the exclusion of the Jewish God. The Buddhist believe that their philosophies is true uh, to the exclusion of the Hindu gods. Everybody, you can't, so you, if you throw it at me, then you have to answer the question. Everybody is exclusive. Everybody thinks that their take on spirituality is right. Now, there's at this point, sometimes they'll come up with an objection and say, you know, but all, you have all these different religions. Aren't they all the same? And so, one of the things that they'll say is a, an illustration. You know what it's like? It's kind of like having five blind men around an elephant. And one blind man grabs uh, uh, the leg and, and he says, oh, an elephant is like a tree, you know. And another blind man grabs his belly, you know, touches his belly and he says, no, 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 an elephant is like a wall. And another one grabs his uh, nose and, and a trunk and, uh, no, an elephant is like a, a large python. And another one grabs his uh, uh, tail and he says, no, an elephant is like uh, a long worm. Okay. So, when they say that illustration, they go, you see, that's what spirituality is like. The Buddhists, they have a leg. The Christians, they have a belly. The Muslims, they have a trunk. But you don't, you got, what you guys don't understand is that, is that you, just, you have to be humble. You can't be so arrogant to think that you have all the knowledge. Now that seems like a really humble way of looking at spirituality. But here's the problem with that. How do you know that there's a whole elephant if everybody in the story is blind? unless you're the only one that sees. 
It's a very arrogant thing to say, that you can see clearly what all the world's religions don't see. See, because the only way that story works is if the narrator of the story can see, and everybody else is blind. So what sounds like humble in the beginning, oh, let's be humble and let's, you know, is really a very arrogant claim that your take on spiritual truth is better than everybody else's take on spiritual truth. Didn't I say we had to put our thinking caps on? Are you with me on this? Are you okay? All right. Okay. So, the first one, there can't just be one true God. The first one, the first thing I would say, hey, truth is exclusive. Two plus two is four to the exclusion of all other numbers. Second thing I would say is, hey, but what about, you know, that second thing I would say is that everybody has a take on spirituality. Everybody does. And everybody thinks that they're right to the exclusion of everybody else. Even people who go, no, I believe all uh, faiths. I believe that that's fine for everyone. Then you exclude me because I don't. I believe just one. See, even the inclusivist excludes the exclusivist, right? Everybody excludes somebody, right? And then finally, um, the, the, the idea about spirituality, everybody just having a little peace. All right, you cool with that? All right, so let's move on. Oh, by the way, if you want to, I, I realized that in this talk, there's no way I can get to everything. And so I'm going to give you resources. I'll give you books to read and things to check out. That'll be really, really great for you. Let me give you a couple, okay? First one is by the same author. It's the first two is by the same author. The first is The Case for Christ. This book is fantastic. Lee Strobel is a... Um, was, not is, was a reporter for the Chicago, uh, I think it was the Chicago, uh, it was a reporter in, for a famous paper in Chicago. I can't remember the name of the paper. You could look him up. Lee Strobel. Now, Lee Strobel went to disprove Christianity and went ahead and got converted by the evidence. That's awesome. So that's a book worth reading, right? right? So the guy went into the project to disprove Christianity the evidence so overwhelmed him he came to Christ, right? That means we've got some really, really good evidence. So the case for Christ, and it, he writes it like a, like, a, like a reporter. Like, you know, I mean, I was glued to the thing. It was like a murder mystery almost. It was great. The case, it was like a court drama. Uh, the case for Christ. But he also wrote a book called The Case for Faith. This is so much fun. The Case for Faith was um, a great book that he wrote about objections to faith, sort of like what I'm doing right now. I'm doing objections to faith, not just for Jesus, but just for faith in general, in Christ. And so um, he wrote this book. Great book. I can't recommend it highly enough. Then, but if some of you guys go, nah, I don't like big books. Um, I, I, I'd rather have a small book. Okay, get, here's a small book for you. More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. More Than a Carpenter by Josh McDowell. You could read. I read slowly. I read it in less than two hours. I read really slow. I'm a super slow reader. I read that in less than two hours. You can probably read it in 45 minutes. I'm not sure that that's 100 pages. It's a great, super tiny book, and it goes with all the objections, and it gives great answers, okay? So those are some resources you can follow. Okay, so let's look at another one, okay? This is a big one. Are you ready? How could a good God allow pointless suffering in the world? Has anybody here ever thought of this? Has, that, has anybody here ever been asked this? Yeah, right? This is a really tough question. So let's take some time to do it, right? 
Now, the first thing, the first thing is, if someone says to me, how could a good God allow suffering in the world? The first thing I do is I ask, why are they asking that question? If it's a theoretical question and we're having a, just an intellectual dialogue, I have one response. If their kid just died a few weeks ago, totally other response. You can understand why, right? So I ask, why do you ask? And if they say, my wife just left me. I mean, I, we, I was good to her and there was no reason. And, or she died. Let's make it she died because that would be even more horrible. Um, my wife died. She went to work and had a massive heart stroke and died. She was the picture of health. Why, 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 why does this happen? Okay. If that happens, then I weep with those who weep. I'm not trying to answer questions. I'm trying to walk through a suffering. Does that make sense? So don't feel, don't feel like even Christians, when I've gone to Christians and they've, made, they've had a great loss, and they go, how could God do this? Why did God allow this? I'm not very fast to answer. There's a, let me tell you something. I, there are whole books written on this particular subject. There's, well, I'll give you some suggestions. Um, there are very good answers, but that's not the time to answer them. Right? Everything is within it. Right? There's a time for everything. And so, remember how we said, how uh, Peter said, we're supposed to do this with gentleness and respect? Okay, we've got to respect where we're at. So, if they're going through the suffering themselves, brother, let me give you a hug. Let me weep with you. Let me cry with you. Let me walk with you through this. That's the first response. If this is an argument, or not an argument, but that, this is sort of a debate in that sense, if this is an intellectual issue, then I have another um, response. So, the, the objection is, how could a good God allow pointless suffering in the world? In other words, we're not offended at suffering. We're offended at suffering that doesn't seem to have any reason behind it. Right? You're, watch this. In January, thanks to the dinners and the parties that you're going to, many of you are going to volunteer to suffer on what we generally call a treadmill, right? Because you're going to look at the scale and you're going to go, oh my goodness, I can't believe it, how this happened. I'm like, yo, I got a few suggestions on how that happened, right? That was pretty easy. Well, you're gonna, and what you're going to do is you're going to go on the treadmill and you're, gonna, you're going to volunteer for suffering, right? And, you know, people are going to be watching you sweat and you're going to be like, you know, whoo, yeah, you know, and you're going to be doing that whole thing. And the, but the reason that you're going to do this is because it makes perfect sense to you. You have an objective. That makes sense. Our problem isn't with suffering. For instance, I, for example, like some of you, I'm going to college, and I'm working on my master's. And there's a suffering that goes with that, right? There's, like, I have to tell my family at a certain time, I'm sorry, guys, I really want to hang out with you, but i got to go do homework. i got to stay up super late. I was busy before. I'm crazy busy now. And now i got to stay up late, wake up early, and do all sorts of crazy contortions. Um, well, there's, there's some suffering involved in that, right? But it's voluntary suffering. It's suffering that I understand. I know that there's, this is great. This is going to bless the recovery house of worship. If I grow and learn, this is going to bless you, because and then you'll get better sermons, you'll get deeper uh, theology, it'll be wonderful, right? 
There's that kind of suffering. But and then there's the suffering like your three-year-old kid got sick and died. And there's no reason for this. You love Jesus. Why, why did this happen? Well, if they bring that up, and they'll say something like, you know, hey, there's uh, a tsunami hit India a few years ago. 250,000 people um, died. Paris, you know, good night. Look at what happened in Paris just a few weeks ago. This is just mindless, senseless violence. I, the first thing that I would say is that just because we have suffering in the world, that does not prove that there's no God, that there's no direct correlation, right? Just because there's pain in my marriage doesn't mean I don't have a wife. It might prove that I actually do, right? Obviously, right? So because there's suffering in the world does not necessarily disprove that there is God. Secondly, I ask, and what's your alternative? In other words, if you're saying, oh, the suffering that we have in this world proves that there is no God, what is your argument? That the suffering in this world is absolutely pointless because there's no point to living, because there's no God? In other words, you would have to invent a point to your life if there's nothing but what we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch right now. You'd have to invent a point. Do you understand what I'm saying? In other words, let me see if I could say this in another way. If there is no meaning to your suffering other than your, the meaning that you place on it, then we are more than most to be pitied. Because the, your life is meaningless. Eventually, the earth will burn up. I mean, the, the sun will burn up. The, the earth will be no more. There's no point in anything. Nobody will remember. We are, listen, listen, listen. We are a speck of dust on a fly that is living for about 20 days and then dying. Like there's no meaning to life. So what's your alternative? That there's no God and that there's no meaning in life? Well, if that's your alternative, you can keep that, but we think that there's actual meaning in life. Now, here's my argument. I go, just because you can't see a meaning doesn't mean that there is no meaning. I think it's the height of arrogance to say, God, I cannot see any point to this. And then God to go, you know what? If you can't, there's no way I can see any meaning to this. Like, I think that's arrogant for us to think that just because we can't see a point to it, that there's no point to it. The truth is that you and I don't know. We can claim ignorance, but we can't claim, we shouldn't claim arrogance. Does that make sense? Okay, so... Um, there's a guy, a famous philosopher. In fact, this guy is massive. I tried, I tried to read this guy, and it's really, 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 really hard. His name is Alvin Plantinga. He's the professor at Notre Dame. He's a brilliant guy, and he, he wrote an entire book on this issue of God and suffering, right? And it was an amazing book. You can look it up. But the point is, is that he... he uh, invented this illustration. He said this, if you had a pup tent, everybody knows what a pup tent is? No, okay, a pup tent is the kind of, you know like when you see commercials and you see a tent in the backyard and you know they have the little flashlight? That's a pup tent, right? Have you ever seen that? Okay, so if you have a pup tent and you have, um, and you open that pup tent and you look inside for a Great Dane, Right? Everybody knows what a Great Dane is? Big dog? Right, yeah, very big dog. So you look inside the pup tent for a Great Dane, and you don't see it, then you can 
very reasonably, very reasonably say there's no, there's no Great Dane in the pup tent. However, if you go to your pup tent and you look for a noceum, you know what a noceum is? A noceum, a noceum is a fly from, that, that's based in Africa and it is so small, it can actually get through the little holes of a net. You know the net that you put up? That's how small they are. But they have a bite that's like really powerful. It's like totally disproportionate to their size. But they call them noceums. And the reason that they call them noceums is because you noceum. <laughs> they're very tiny. That's why they call them. Yeah, they're noceums. Right. So <laughs> they're creative. So, okay, so now here's the deal. Here's the deal. If you open your tent and you say, there's no seams, there's no no seams, don't be so sure. They're very hard to see. And just because you don't see them doesn't mean that there's not one or two in there. So it is with suffering. If you pull the veil on your suffering or the suffering that's found in the world, 250,000 people die in India for a tsunami. You lose a loved one. Great suffering takes, uh, happens in your own life. You experience tragedy. If you pull the pup tent uh, uh, back and you look on your suffering and pain and you don't see a reason, then it's a wonderful opportunity for you to trust that God is sovereign. Because even though you don't see a reason, doesn't mean that there's no reason. Does that make sense? Yeah. So my response is simply, it's simply arrogant to believe that because we can't see why we suffer, that there's no reason then. Just because the whole world can't figure it out doesn't mean God can't figure it out. And that doesn't mean that God... Okay, does that make sense? Okay, here's two books that I'm going to give you for this issue if you want to read up on it. These are two of some of my favorite books. Um, the Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. This thing is awesome because he lost his wife and this was his like journal, struggling through this. He, lost, he got married at a late age in life. Like waited for his wife for like 50 years. And then like five years later, she died. That's really painful. He wrote this book as a direct result. Okay, and then um, another book is Where is God When It Hurts? Philip Yancey, this is the best treatment on suffering that I've ever read in my entire life. Where is God when it hurts? It is an amazing book. I recommend that you all get it. Anything from C.S. Lewis, anything Philip Yancey, get. They're amazing. Okay. All right. Uh, oh, gosh. All right. Let me skip a few, okay? I'm going to go to... Oh, this is a good one. How can a loving God send people to hell? Have you ever thought of that? How can a loving God chuck people to hell. Anybody here ever had that question, thought that question, or had that posed to you? Anybody? Yeah? Okay, there's a few of us. Okay. Right. Okay. So, so when people ask this question, we have to correct some of their thinking. We think that hell is a place that God hurls people to and that they're in hell going, no, I want to go, Jesus, why? Right? 
that's what we think. So we sort of see this guy like falling, and then, right, 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 and then the fiery thing, and Jesus is like, <laughs> and like, you know, and they're like, right, the little, little, little fire demons running around in circles and all that stuff, right? Okay. This is absolutely not um, what hell is. Hell is simply the absence of God. Somebody say that with me. Hell is simply the absence of God. Say it again. Hell is simply the absence of God. That's what hell is. If you've ever felt depressed, dark, you had a, like a, like not even a taste, but that's what it's going to be like. It's going to feel like a massive depression that you just are. Now, but now here's the thing. That's, that's what hell is. So hell is people getting exactly what they wanted here on earth. Just a little bit more. So, there's an, one, of the, one of the best books I ever read in my entire life, top three best books I ever read in my entire life is on this subject. It's um, by C.S. Lewis. It's called The Great Divorce. Guys, if you get one book that I'm recommending here, um, reconsider and get the rest of them. But if you just get one. Yeah, I know. It's early in the morning. Y'all are not with me. It's cool. All right, you'll get it later. Um, the Great Divorce. The Great Divorce is a, literally a, a book that C.S. Lewis wrote about people who were in hell and who had an opportunity to go to heaven. It's like a fictional book. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. I can't even share with you a little bit of it because then I'll spoil it for you. It is an incredible book. But here's what... C.S. Lewis says, C.S. Lewis says that hell is not like a place that people hurt. Hell is just a little bit more of what you wanted here on earth. So for instance, you really, all you think is what's going to make you happy is having that relationship. Oh boy, if I just had the relationship, then hell will be your whole eternity thinking that that relationship will make you happy and whole and you experiencing that. Some of you have experienced that already, haven't you? Like you think this person, and then your life becomes like a living hell. Isn't that true? Have you ever experienced that? Well, hell is just a little bit more. You know what? If I just get more money, then hell will be you spending the rest of eternity growing your finances and realizing it never satisfies. But C.S. Lewis said it this way, and he says it in such a cool way. He goes like this. Hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining always blaming others, but you are still distinct from the grumble. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you no longer, when, when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood of, or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever and ever like a machine. It is not a question of God sending us to hell. In each of us, there is something growing which will be hell unless it is nipped in the bud. So what C.S. Lewis is saying is that not, hell is not someplace that God throws you. In fact, God, and, I, and this is the point, Whenever somebody says that, I, I remind them 
that God came from heaven to earth and stands at the gates of hell and tells everybody who's insistent on going to hell, over my dead body. God stands there and says, no, I don't want one of you. I'd rather die than let you go to this place. I'd rather die. And people go, than die. Because I'm going. You see, Christianity is not a, a, a belief system that says, God says there's a heaven and a hell, and it doesn't help you at all in trying to figure out which way is which. Christianity is, God says there's a heaven and a hell. He wants so bad for you not to go there that he'd rather experience hell for himself in your place than let you go there. See, God doesn't hurl us into hell. God hurled himself into hell and lived the life that you should have lived but did not and died the death that you deserve to die, but you don't have to because Jesus died for you. This is not, this is not like a slam dunk. Second thing I say, okay, now the next argument. So you get that argument, right? Is that, no, 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 God is not hurling people into hell. Hell is people having, what they, having a little bit more of what they already have here on earth, right? The second thing that I say is, does hell offend you? And of course they'll say, yes, of course it offends me. It's the most offensive thing. It's, it's cruel. It's a disgusting doctrine. It makes, you know, it's, it's archaic and all that other stuff. And I, and I say, I go, why do you think that is? Do you think that that's a global thing? That's a universal emotion? Of course it is. Everybody knows that. He goes, well, you probably haven't been around the world. See, because the fact is, is that there are, that's a cultural thing. You believing that hell is horrible and awful and terrible, it's because it's a culture you were brought up in. And I remind people that the Bible is a heavenly book. And if, in fact, God was the ultimate author of the book, then there will be places in every culture that disagrees with the Bible. So if you go to Istanbul, there's a whole bunch of stuff that they hate about the Bible. And if you go to America, there's a whole bunch of stuff that they hate about the Bible. Because it doesn't come from a culture. The Bible comes from heaven. So in America, we love forgiveness. We love the doctrine of forgiveness, especially if we need some. Right? And... We hate the idea of hell. We think it's cruel and it's medieval. It's awful. But you go to certain places in Africa where, ch where a guy's children and wife were raped and murdered in front of him. And the idea of forgiveness is absurd and offensive. And the idea of hell makes perfect sense. You see, the idea of hell, if you like it or don't like it, it's a cultural response. It's because your culture says so. Oh, well, I don't like it in my culture. Well, there's other cultures that have no problem with that. It's not a slam dunk. Make sense? Okay, so... <laughs> I wish you could see what I see. I see people go like, yeah, sure. All right. I'm like, this is really good. <sighs> I'm trying. This is harder than it looks. Okay. Okay. All right, that's... All right. I have others like, you know... Hey, doesn't science disprove Christianity? I have other questions like, okay, so whatever, we, we can't get to them all, but here's the point that I'm trying to make. Listen, there can't just be one true God. Here's what I want you to know. Listen, this is very big. Um, the thing about Christianity is that everybody gets in the same way. 
It's the most reasonable way to get to God. If you're rich, you're poor. If you're beautiful or ugly. If you're educated or uneducated. Everybody gets in the same. Everybody. Whether you've been like Mother Teresa or you've been like the murderer on death row. Everybody comes to Christ the same. What could be more fair than that? That's, right? If there's just one true God. If there's just one true God, that would be the way I want to go in. I want everybody to come at the same level. Secondly, how could a good God allow suffering in the world? Well, he didn't just allow it, but he stepped into it. And he walked what you should have walked. And he died the death you deserve to die. And he didn't just say, deal with the suffering. He said, I'll absorb it all in myself on a hellish Friday. That he took all of hell for you. Jesus didn't just idly, buy, idly watch. He took his own medicine and says, I'll free you. You'll never have to go through hell because I went through hell for you. Um, how could a loving God send people to hell? God says, I'd rather go to hell than send you to hell. And then he followed up with that. And he experienced hell for himself so that you might not be away. Listen, we have wonderful answers to the questions that people are asking. And the answers are all found in Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, would you come to him and find all of your questions and fears and phobias answered in Christ? Not just being good people who occasionally adhere to a doctrine or two, but being people who surrender to Christ, knowing that he's our joy, our satisfaction, our hope, and our all in all. Okay. I wonder if you wrote down any questions. Maybe you have one or two. If you have them, go to the microphones right now. Um, stand there, and we'll just take a few minutes. If not, we will sing like it's 1999. Okay, go to the microphones quickly. Okay, go for it, Alex. morning. Okay, because we've got to start with the easy stuff first, right? Yeah, yeah. She said, can you explain the oneness and the trinity, um, the oneness and the differences, in other words, the tri-unity of God? Can you explain? <laughs> no. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so right, so any explanation that I give, honestly, you fall into her heresy. So I just, okay, so here's the deal. Christians believe that God is one. Everybody agrees with that, right? But that he is three in one, right? Now, here's, but let me, okay, I can't answer that question, but let me see if I could sidestep, all right? And, um, but the thing is, is that, God being Trinity makes all the difference in the world to us. The reason that we can say now that God is love, Allah can't say that. No other God that you can think of can say that. And the reason is, is because God was a unity. God was, the Father was in love with the Son. And the, so you know how you've heard throughout the years, oh, you know why God made people? Because he needed someone to love. Eh, not true. Not true. God did not make us because he needed someone to love. God was satisfied. And out of the overflowing love came you and me. Sort of like me and my wife. 
out of the overflowing love, our love together, we have five children. And so while I can't explain the triunity, I'm in awe of it. But phenomenal question, really. If you have anything about the Trinity, we're closing this down right now. Okay. Um, all right. Go for it. Edwin, um, my question is, is that sometimes I read in the Bible and it says, um, is there more than one heaven? Is there more than one heaven? That's a great question. Okay, so um, when the Bible speaks about heaven, it, we have to understand what they're saying when they say that. Okay, so when we die and like when we were Jesus, like Jesus comes again and all, in the end, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. We're not going to be like on clouds and wings. No, the, the, the earth is going to get the makeover that it had at the original, right? We're going to get the new heavens and the new earth. You and I are going to get a new body. Aren't you glad, right? Where you could eat all the junior's cheesecake you like <laughs> and not gain an ounce. That's what I'm talking about. I want to have patelas with no consequences, right? <laughs> so um, that's what, okay, so, so when the, it's going to be the new heavens and the new earth. But what I, what I do want to say is that, you know, so, so when the Bible talks about heaven, it talks about three distinct places, right? So there's, right, um, uh, what is it? There's the um, sort of the sky that we see now, and then there's the atmosphere, and then there's the stars, and the, so like when they say like the third heaven or something like that, what they're referring to is, it's, it's actually spatial, what they're referring to. So, but when we talk about heaven, it's where Jesus is. That's what heaven is. Heaven is where Jesus is. So there's only one heaven. Thank you so much. Okay. All right. Go for it. Good morning. Um, I always had such an issue as a kid with when I was threatened that I was going to hell right. and I was going to burn. Yeah. And it kept me away from this relationship because of God. But then when I re read the scriptures, I don't see anywhere where God tells me, He's sending me to a, a little hell where I'm going to burn for the rest of eternity. Right. right. But people still will threaten me with that, right? Right. In my heart, I don't believe that right. will, anybody, any of us will ever go to a literal hell we're going to burn to death. That's just okay. not my belief. Right. But when a Christian or somebody in their own faith tells me, if you don't do A, B, and C, you're going to hell and you're going to burn for the rest of your life, how do you... Okay. Well, there's a couple of things. Number one, the first thing I would say is if that's in here, then it's true. We, we submit not to our culture, not to what our thinking is. We submit to God's word, right? How many times have we done this, right? We live under God's word, not over God's word. We live in submission to God's word. So if the Bible teaches that, then, then that's what we believe. Now, let's talk about what the Bible teaches. The Bible does speak about hell as being a place of burning sulfur and of fire. Um... Most scholars believe that this is uh, using imagery. But now think about this imagery, right? I go, okay, I'm going to tell you about a place that you've never been before. And I'm not going to speak literally, but I've got to kind of give you an idea of what the place is going to be like. And it's like burning forever. That's like an awful place to go, right? Yeah, so in other words, it might not be literal fire, but it'll be awful. Awful. Nobody, you know how like some people have said to you, oh man, I want to, you know, of course I'm going to hell because all my friends are going to be there. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. I go, dude, listen to me. Listen to me. None of your friends will want to know you when you're there. As a matter of fact, they'll be angry at you that you didn't tell them about what we just spoke about. 
Hell is a place of gnashing of teeth. It's a place of great suffering. And Jesus doesn't want you to go there. Therefore, he died for your sake. So that, you know, you literally have to go to hell over Jesus' dead body. Literally. Okay. Any other? Yep. Go for it. People sometimes ask me, um, why do you believe the Bible? Why do you believe it's God's word? Okay. Fantastic. Man wrote it and translated it. For right, the, yeah. Know, the whole thing. And it's just a book full of myths and all that other stuff. And why do you even bother to believe this? Well, okay, there's a couple of answers to that. And the first one is easy. Um, I, I, the Bible is different from other books in several different ways. The Bible is not, the Bible is an incredibly unique book. The Bible, the Bible has many places where it can be verified. In other words, uh, so there was this place in Jericho, and there was this town, and there was a... The Bible states that there are places and dates and histories that you can start to believe. The Bible doesn't start with long, long ago and far, far away <laughs> in the land of make-believe. No, no, no. It says when, when, Luke, when Luke is talking about Jesus, he goes, when such and such was in office... You know, this was the year where, you know, Quirinius was in office. He actually gives politicians dates. He's giving factual evidence. Secondly, the reason that we believe it is because of the eyewitnesses. I'm just going right now, I'm moving, I'm moving from the whole Bible, because that's a really, really big question, to just the resurrection. We can believe that the Bible speaks about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, because of the eyewitness testimony. And not only because of the eyewitness testimony, but also because people go, oh, but that just happened because of legend. No, 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 no. You don't understand. There was no time for legend. No time for legend. Immediately, people started to share this story about this this guy rising from the dead, claiming to be God to forgive sins. That happened immediately. We see that in history, and we see that. Secondly, the Bible is not just a book that man put together and manipulated and all that other stuff. That's not true. People who say that are simply not students of God's word or students of the scriptures. Because here's what we find. What we find is that the Bible is the most well-attested ancient document in all the world. There's nothing even close to it. Nothing we have thousands and thousands and thousands. You know how like, people will say things like, oh, yeah, but the Bible was written hundreds of years after the events happened. No. We have, listen, we have uh, either pieces of manuscripts or manuscripts themselves that date within 70 years. And I'm talking about a translation. So think about that. How long does it take in the ancient world to take a document it to become popular enough, get translated and sent to another place. This is not the 21st century. And we have stuff 70 years that's already translated in Egypt. Think about that. That means they were talking about this from day one, right from go. So we can trust the Bible because what it says on things that we can verify, and therefore those things that we weren't there for and we're not, we can't verify, we can trust because it's trustworthy. I trust the Bible like I trust my wife. You know what I'm saying when I say that, right? My wife has been honest with me to the degree that if she says, I go, where were you? I called you. 
and, and you didn't pick up your phone. And, and where were you? She goes, well, I got a flat tire, and my phone died, and it's just been a harrowing. Well, I don't go, liar! You were unfaithful! No, I don't do that. Why would I do that? You know, but, but watch this. I can't really know that for sure, right? But yeah, I can. I trust her. I totally trust her. And because she's been faithful in these things that I can prove, it's easy for me to trust her with things that I can't personally prove. Make sense? That's the deal with the Bible.